0: So for now, we're still in Mark, chapter 7. We're at the end of chapter 7. So when we start again in July, we're going to pick up uh, in, at the beginning of chapter 8, which will be the halfway point. We'll, we'll, we'll be halfway through the book of Mark. So this morning, the verses are uh, 31 through 37. 31 through 37. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. Um We thank you for giving him wisdom and insight and understanding and relating uh, the good news of Jesus Christ in a particular way, in a particular way that wasn't just helpful to him, wasn't just helpful to uh, the Christians in Rome, but has been helpful to every Christian who has lived since. We pray, Lord God, as we open this text that was written a long time ago for a particular audience, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and, and minds and see how you meant it even for us this morning. You are a wondrous God. Your word is uh, unbelievable, (laughs) at times very difficult to understand that you were thinking of us this morning, way back when you were working through Mark and this text. And we pray, Lord God, that you would open that to us now, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would humble us, and that your son would get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the healing of a man with defective hearing and speech is recorded only by Mark. Uh, This is one of the the rare times where Mark is talking, telling a story that only he tells. He's the only one that tells the story. Now, when that kind of thing happens, uh, when one gospel author is going to pick up a story, that's generally a flag for me to slow down and pay attention. Because why would he do that? Why don't Matthew and Luke tell the story? Why doesn't John tell the story? Uh, John seems very preoccupied with sight in his gospel, but why does he leave this story out? What is Mark trying to accomplish by including this? Now, let's step back for a moment and look at this larger section uh, of where we've been and where we're going, because there's a lot of similarities. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 31, and you go all the way through chapter 7, verse 37, okay, that big section over here, it's actually very, very similar to chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 30. They mirror one another. Okay, there's these repetitions going on. And and so because he's repeating himself, because he's telling stories that nobody else is is telling, it's very, very important that we understand what the grand scheme is. Now, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 31, I'm going to go through what we've been through, and it's actually an outline of of the whole chapter 8 that we're going to get into in July. So listen, he feeds a multitude. Uh, Jesus crosses the sea. There's a significant landing on the other shore. He has conflicts with Pharisees. He has a con- conversation about bread. He heals some people, and there's a confession of faith about who he is. That outlines chapter 6, 31 through 737, and that's exactly chapter 8. Okay, So th- these are the things that matter. He's feeding multitudes. He's crossing in the sea back and forth. He's making a landfall. He's having conflict with uh, the f- leaders of Israel. He's talking about bread a lot. He's healing a lot of people, and what we're going to see today is this this portion that we're in now ends with people declaring who he is. Chapter eight the same way. In the end, they're going to declare who he is. Mark really wants us to pay attention to certain aspects of the story, and so he wa- and wants us to to the extent that he's he's repeating himself. Now I'm with Paul. It's it's okay that um, the the authors of the gospels and, and the epistles repeat themselves because why? Well, because we're hard of hearing, (laughs) we're very hard of hearing. Uh, We have not really matured much past my five-year-old, who I have to tell like the same thing three times in the same fifteen-minute period of time. Like, put your shoes on. Put your shoes on your feet. Get your shoes on, right? And like my right, just this morning, five minutes. How many times I give the command? Once every thirty seconds. Get your shoes on. Because what happens? He gets very distracted. He's like, oh, I remember when I used to wear this shoe. Can I wear this? No, no, no. There's your shoes. I put them there. Just put them on. Well, what, what shoes are Titus going to wear? It doesn't matter what shoes Titus going to wear. Just put the shoes on. Okay? Now, this, this whole episode this morning was very funny. And it got me thinking about this is what we're like. No wonder Mark's repeating himself. Right? Jesus is the, the God who came down from heaven to live amongst us, to heal us, to feed us, to take care of us. Right? And, and so he tells the story over and over, these stories repeatedly. Because he wants us to get who he is. And when we read these stories, it's, it's, this is not just about a deaf guy who can't speak well. That's what the story's about. Right? But, but, we're all deaf people who can't speak well. Right? Think about your week. How, how, how well did you hear God this week? How well did you praise him? How well did you use your mouth? These stories are not just stories. He didn't just write this down and you're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this reading challenge and so we'll get to Mark and we'll check the box and we'll move on. This is a story about you. I'm your friend just like this deaf mute guy has friends. right? You're my friends. We need to be taking one another before the throne of God and crying out Him, saying, listen, we're, we're deaf and we can't communicate. You have to open our ears. You have to give us the ability to speak. You have to give us the ability to praise you if you want praise. To preach and proclaim the gospel if you want it preached and proclaimed. We are the deaf mutes. And so that's why he included this story. (laughs) He's talking about you. He's talking about me. So this is what Mark has in mind. He he was originally writing this book for Christians who needed to know that Jesus loved Gentiles as much as he loved Jews. For people who realized that they were deaf mutes, he needed to write a story for deaf mutes. So the the humble thing for all of us to do is is to feel this guy's story in our bones, to feel like yeah, this is me. This is I am like this guy. Now There's a number of interesting elements to the story that really help us, that help bring it home. This whole episode here today is the end of a cycle in which we're trying to understand, we're trying to see through the, the writing of Mark, that Jesus is the greater prophet, leading a greater exodus, feeding the people as the manna from heaven, the heir of the prophet Elijah against Jezebel. He's testing the faith of the widow last week. He's raising her child. And Jesus is fulfilling the messianic promise of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. This man, who is the, the word that they use to define the, this, this guy's speech impediment, is a, is a word that's only used one other time in the whole Bible. And it's the Greek version of the Bible. Okay? And, and in Hebrew, it says mute. Okay? But what he's really talking about. This word ties this story directly to chapter 35 of Isaiah. This is this is the kind of thing that's kind of hard to explain. Mark is sitting there writing a story, and he's trying to make a point about Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus is the one who comes in the wilderness and leads us out of it. Well, what what does he do for the people that he finds in the wilderness? Well, he goes back and he sees this story about how the, the, the deaf will hear, and the lame will leap for joy, and there will be this highway in the wilderness that is the way of holiness. And there'll be springs of water there. So he has this all in his mind, whether he's really aware of it or not. And so he starts to write this story and the words come out of him. This man who has the speech impediment is the man that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 35. The way that the connection happens is it's the only time someone is described with this word. All the other people that come to him that can't hear very well and can't speak very well, it's the only time this word is used because Mark wants to make a straight-line connection between the age of the Messiah in the wilderness promised in Isaiah back here and what Jesus is actually accomplishing. So let's look at this. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, what's fascinating about this route is that many people think it means Mark had never been to this area before. Because this is a little bit like traveling from New York to Chicago via Boston. Now, if you don't know your geography very well, that is not exactly what we would call a direct route, right? You don't get in your car to drive to Chicago and first go to Boston, right? If I'm going to go to Tacoma, I don't go to Spokane first. Let's put it into real serious Washingtonian terms here. But that's a little bit what Jesus does. In order to go south... He first goes east. And then after he's been there for a while, now he makes this big arc and he comes back around. Now, it's so frustrating. People think this means Mark doesn't know what he's talking about. As if, the right? The modern man who would never why would you ever go in anything but a straight line? (laughs) Well, there's a ton of reasons he would take this long route. Uh, How many of you guys have ever been on vacation? Okay, now, do you always just go directly where you're going? Is that usually how it works? I've been on vacate, right? Has anyone ever been on Highway 100 or 101 or whatever it is that goes down the coast? Yes. Was there any reason to do it? No, right? Like, Let's go way out in the middle of nowhere in the coast so that we can go to Portland. That doesn't make any sense because I can get to Portland in two and a half hours on the straight line freeway. What did it say that Jesus wanted to do back in the last story? He wants rest. He wants to get away from the crowds. He would like to go, right? He'll take any zigzaggy... Path he needs to in order to avoid people. So of course, of course, he's going in this route that's very difficult, right? Very hard to understand. But what I love is that it just it displays the unbelief of modern man, because there's this whole debate about whether Mark had ever actually been out in this portion of Israel. And you're like, because Jesus takes a very long way to get there, you're going to suddenly question every okay. I'm not that smart, right? I, I, all I know is that when I've tried to avoid work, when I was at King County, I would go any direction I needed to to get away from it, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. The, there's a couple of other interesting facts, though. He is in an area where there are, in fact, Jews, but it's mostly inhabited by Gentiles. And it doesn't say how long he's, he's gone. I mean, this could be weeks. This could be days. This could be months. Well, why don't they tell us what happened? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, he's walking around. He doesn't just magically stop healing people. He doesn't just magically stop telling people the gospel. Why Why wouldn't Mark tell us everything that he did? Well, John mentions in chapter 21, verse 25, at the end of his gospel, he says, "And and, and Jesus did so much more than what I've recorded here that it, the books would overwhelm the world. There'd be more books. If I wrote everything that Jesus did and everywhere he went, it would be too much to fit in in books that would fit in the world. It's just too much. And so think, why would Mark is selecting here what he tells us and what he doesn't tell us? That is very interesting to me. There's a ton about Jesus that we actually don't know. But what it is selected means that that it must be the most important things, right? So here he is in the Gentile area out in what? A wilderness. Well, in Isaiah chapter 35, what does it say? The Messiah was going to what? Go to a wilderness. If if their concept is the land of Israel is the land and everything outside of it is the wilderness, where's Jesus? He's not in Israel. But but they have failed to understand something even more fundamental to this is that Adam was given a garden and he turned it into a wilderness. There were no thorns, he sins, and then there's thorns. What do you right in a well cultivated garden? If it has thorns, it seems to be a well-cultivated garden, correct? What does it become? Well, it becomes something that looks like my yard, which is not a well-cultivated garden, in case you misunderstood that joke. It's a wilderness. Adam turned the world into a wilderness. So these categories that the Israelites are having a difficult time overcoming, Jesus is trying to make crystal clear. I, I'm just in a wilderness because I came to the earth. Everywhere is a wilderness he's been trying to make that point since chapter one verse one. Israel thinks it's not in a wilderness but it's in a deep dark spiritual wilderness. The disciples who are with him, they see everything he's doing, they're going everywhere he goes, they eat with him they, they talk with him and what they have hard hearts, hard ground it's not a well cultivated garden okay and, and everyone in in the world is in the same wilderness. Because in Adam, we all left the garden. And so it, what, what we need is someone to come and turn the wilderness that we're all living in spiritually and in reality, right? Because thorns are a reality. It's not just a spiritual truth. Anyone who has a job knows this. Anyone who has any kind of vocation understands that's not just a metaphor. We need someone to come into this wilderness and, 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 and make it, right? Give the dry ground. We need springs of living water. We need the thorns to turn it into well-cultivated rose bushes. We need a highway to get out of this wilderness. Uh, growing up in the city, one of the things that's always baffled me about the wilderness is how it's really hard to walk around in it. <laughs> right? Somehow in my mind, I just assumed, right, you go out of the wilderness, it's just the trees grow there and you just walk around. But it turns out unless somebody goes out there and makes a path out right in the Cascades, you're not going to get very far. Because a natural wilderness, just everything grows in abundance in every direction. And and I've wandered off the path hiking, thinking, well, we're in the woods. We'll just go over there. And then you go for like four feet off the path, and you're like, I, okay. I did not understand how wilderness works. (laughs) So if you're in a spiritual wilderness, if you're in a world that has become a wilderness, what do you need in order to get out of it? Someone needs to come with a really big weed whacker, right? Someone needs to come... And and put some gravel down you need a way out and that's what Isaiah 35 is someone is going to come and that person is going to go into the wilderness and what they are going to do is, is turn it into an oasis they're going to put streams of living water there they're going to undo all the thorns they're going to make a highway out that is what Jesus is doing he is weed-whacking a large path through the Gentile lands here because those people are in the wilderness and they need a way out. He hasn't just... right. Think of the story last week. He hasn't just come for the house of Israel. He's come for the whole world. The whole world is his. So here Jesus is, wandering around, out in the wilderness... He does want some rest, but you, we saw last week he's not, he's not so unfeeling, he's not so self-centered, that just because he wants a vacation, he's not going to be disturbed by anyone. right? He, his phone is still on. He's still got his computer. Even though he's on vacation or trying to be on vacation, he's still doing the work of the Lord that, because his, his job is the Messiah. And so that's what you see here. You, you see the tension in his life. How tired do you think this guy is? I mean, on a real level. Think about, he's wandering around, he's got all these dolts he's got to argue with, right? He's got all these guys following him who just aren't getting it, and everybody, everywhere he goes, wants something from him. How tired do you think he is? Ask a mom. I'm sorry, okay. (laughs) They might know. But what you see here is that Jesus is not a self-centered person. He's not like, hey, you know, I need some me time, I'm just going to go out here in the woods and sit and listen to the birds and drink some water out of this natural spring here and just whatever. The birds will bring me food. It'll be great. Now, that, that'd be me. If I could get birds to bring me food, you know how fat I'd be? My goodness. Just sit there. Do nothing. But Jesus isn't that kind of person. We live in an age where this is like the thing, right? A little me time. Mommies need a little me time. Dads, you need to have right, a man cave. You go out there and you be a man. Well, what about your kids? What do they, oh, Okay. That's for June. <laughs> so here Jesus is, he's trying to get a little rest and what happens? You go to Mark chapter 7 verse 32. This is what it says. And they, doesn't say who the they are, brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So this guy who cannot hear, who cannot speak because he's not mute, he has a speech impediment. He makes noises. Now, when I was a kid, I had a coach like this. Um, one of the best coaches I ever had. One of the most entertaining coaches I ever had because he could not hear and he could not he could not speak. So, you know, on the offensive line, he's the offensive line coach. So, just imagine him trying to get a bunch of eight-year-olds to to be a, like a, an effective front line for a football team, and and the guy couldn't speak. So, literally, he oh uh, is the sound that he would make. And after three years of having him as a coach, I'm like, oh, you want me to go to the right? Right? Because you get used to even the sounds that people like that make. But you couldn't understand a word. He, he, there had been an accident of some kind. And so he, he remembered the ability to speak, but it had been when he was very young. And so it had been decades. And so he could remember in his mind how to speak, but the apparatus stopped working. Now I've actually met deaf people and they move, you know, they make hand gestures and stuff, but there's no sound. There's a difference. This guy has a speech impediment. At some point he could speak, and he attempts to speak now, and all that comes out of him is uh, is utterances that nobody can understand. And he's got some people in his life who care about what's going on with him. Because they want him to get better. They want they're bringing him to Jesus, right? Because he can't he if he just walks up there, they're not he can't communicate for himself. They're bringing him to Jesus. That's very important to understand. Somebody loves them, him enough to bring him before Jesus. This word in Greek, translated as speech impediment, is magalalon, okay, which properly, really, if you, if you just translated it directly, it means speaking with difficulty, as I've explained. He's not... He's not incapable of making noise. He's incapable of forming the the noises into any kind of utterance that anyone around him understands. It's a very rare word. The only other time you see it in the scriptures is not even in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Old Testament. You see it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It doesn't say whether he's a Jew. It doesn't say whether he's a Gentile. They begged Jesus to lay hands upon him because they had learned from, from earlier passages And we've already considered they understood this. They'd seen enough of what Jesus had done that laying on of hands was a solemn symbol of consecration. They understand that through it, there is power that's delivered. So there's all this debate about whether these guys are Gentiles or Jews, and it's very unclear. Later on when Jesus says, be open, he speaks Aramaic. Does that mean the guy speaks Aramaic? Does it really matter if the guy understands what Jesus says? In this case... Some people want Jesus to, to touch them or to, he, they want to touch Jesus, but th- there's no conclusive evidence what kind of people these are. Do you know why? It doesn't matter. It, it, I, it ceases to matter at this point. After he's fed the 5,000 Jews, after he's, he's, um, healed the woman, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, doesn't, he's helping everybody now. Okay. This is one of those many things that people spend a ton of time arguing about. Who cares? The guy n- needs help. He has friends who love him enough to bring him before Jesus. Now, deaf mutes, this is one commentator who wrote this, and I found this to be, in our age, this is like super not politically correct. Deaf mutes were classed with other groups not educated enough to keep the law, like women, slaves, imbeciles, and minors. So just to prove some of the points I've made, previously, about how women were second-class citizens. Apparently, you know, they didn't receive an education, so they were classified as people who can't keep the law, like slaves, imbeciles, and minors. So deaf-mutes were not required to keep the law. They weren't also allowed anywhere near the temple. Now, in these days, crowds normally gather to see magicians do tricks. This is what Jesus has been worried about in the past. He's worried that people just think he's a conjurer of some kind, right? Like Gandalf has showed up, and he's just going to kill some Balrogs and heal some people and do right, say some incantations, and him and Harry Potter are going to say some weird things, and things are going to start moving around. He doesn't want to be considered just a magician. He doesn't want to be considered somebody who's just a miracle worker. And so this is partially why he's in the land that he's in in the first place. Now, let's go on to Mark chapter 7, verse 33. Taking the man aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. (laughs) Now, let's talk about this for a moment, right? The last story, the woman wanted her child healed and Jesus, without putting his fork down, said, done, she was healed. So why is he spitting on his finger and rubbing this guy's ears? Why is he doing that? Right? Touching, or no, he spit on his finger and touched the guy's tongue, and then stuck his finger in his ear. Right? I don't know about you. I have little boys. Generally, when you do this and you stick it in someone's ear, that's not pleasant. That's not something you're. Right? You're not helping a person out by doing that. <laughs> Having had brothers, I can tell you right now, it's not that great. <laughs> what, why is Jesus doing? If he doesn't want to be a conjurer, why is he doing the conjuring stuff? It's a good question, I think. He's really trying hard to avoid looking like a man who just is Harry Potter, right, hanging out with Dumbledore, just doing some magic. But there's other things here that clue us in. He takes him aside. Why does Jesus take the guy aside? Okay, well, he's taking him aside because he doesn't want to be seen as just a mere conjurer. He doesn't want to, right, he doesn't want to do this in front of everybody. So clearly what he's doing, right, isn't a conjuring trick. He's not just doing this externally so that everybody else understands what's going on. He takes the man aside because he want to, the guy's a sideshow enough. Right? Think about it. If you can't hear the sounds that you're making, but you used to be able to speak, and you're trying to speak, and you're talking like that, you are a bit of a sideshow in normal society. My football coach... <laughs> His son was on the team. And I just, I remember, I remember feeling for him because occasionally he would try to kind of take his dad aside and have a private conversation, which is something that they never did because there was so much noise. So Jesus is trying to maintain on some level this man's dignity. He doesn't want him to be a sideshow. He cares about him. This this is, he cares about the people that he's healing. They're not just, right, to us, they're faceless, nameless people. Oh, he healed a woman here, and he healed a guy there, and he healed some dude living in out in the uh, cemetery. And they're just like, they're a mob to us. He cares about this man. He doesn't want him to be a sideshow. He wants to take, it's between him and his God. Jesus is God. And he's having a private moment with this man, because what's going on is very private. It's very intimate. It's very personal right we 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 really have a difficult time with these crowds and Jesus to see that he takes these things he, he he's a very personal god that woman touched him right who who had the hemorrhage and he knew that power had gone out from him and he knew who had done it and he knew why he was very intimately involved in that woman's story even though if you read it too quickly you see, you think that he wasn't he's having a private moment with this guy and he's demonstrating a number of very important things. The fountain of living water in the wilderness is him. That's why he spits. <laughs> His spit doesn't just—it's like if he had a vial of it. I know Catholics who keep—you know—they keep little pieces of the cross and they keep Saint Joseph's bone or whatever. They—they they have all these little trinkets that they carry around. There's—and Luther said there's—you know—there's enough pieces of Jesus's cross to have the forests of Lebanon because everyone apparently has a piece of it. It's not like his spittle is something you just keep in a bottle and you can flick on people and it heals them. That's not what happens. Right? Before, what happens? People's faith is the determining factor about his power going out or not. But he is the spring of living water. He's the spring of living water. This man has come to him and he needs healing. And it's very, it's coming, right? What does he say? It's, It's what comes out of you is what makes you clean or unclean. And what comes out of him is life. Right? A little bit of Jesus' spittle, when applied with faith, can open a man's ears who is, who, is, who is deaf. Think about that. Now, if that's what his spittle can do with faith, imagine what he can do if you go all in. Right? If you have all of Jesus. Think about the people. They come, and all they do in faith is reach out, and just, it just brushes his clothes, and they're healed. Imagine how much power, how much life, how much energy is thriving in this man. He's the spring of living water. He is very intimately involved in this man, with this man and his healing. Now, there's something else that's interesting here before we go on to other parts, is that he, he pierces the man's ears with his fingers. All of this is symbolic. He's the spring of living water. He's piercing the man's ears. Why is he doing it? This is the question that I asked that we're trying to answer. Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, this is what it reads. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, you shall he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day, but if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear. You shall pierce his ear, and he shall be your slave forever, and to your female slave you shall do the same. This man, Jew or Gentile, wants Jesus to pierce his ears. He's like the the Syrophoenician woman. The Syrophoenician woman would rather be a puppy in God's house than the lady of her own home. This man would rather be a slave in the Lord's house than to be the master of his own life. That's what's going on here. The, the, the stuff that Jesus is doing, he's enacting Right, I've, I've said this before, but he's living out the history and the types and the shadows of, of Israel from going all the way back to Abraham, going all the way back before that. He's piercing this man's ear because this man is wants to be, and he wants him to be his slave. Now, right, this is woke America. Did that preacher just say that that man wants to be Jesus's slave? Did you hear everything that you're, right? You have a man in this story in Deuteronomy. Let's talk about this for a moment because we do live in woke America. We live in America where you have people who should know better, stand up and say, well, God hates all forms of slavery. All forms of slavery are wicked. All, well, that's actually not true. It's actually not true. Man stealing slavery is bad. Chattel slavery is bad, right? I'm going to row a boat over to Africa and steal a bunch of people and then sell them and not care how they're treated? Right? Chucking the ones that die overboard? No. No. It's very important to understand that and the English Standard Version does this all the time. You know what you know what Paul calls himself constantly? They clean it up in the SV. He calls himself a bondservant, but that's not really the word. Sometimes they say servant, but that's not really the word either. He says, I'm Jesus' slave. I'm his slave. How much control over your own life does a slave have? None. So then us, right, white guilt Americans, here we all, everyone in this room, right, they want to drown us in white guilt. They want to waterboard us in white guilt. We suddenly start thinking very, oh well, we don't want anything to do with that. But listen to what it says. If, if, if a Jew had to sell himself into slavery to another man, at the end when he was to be set free, because he wasn't supposed to be a slave for his entire life, you're supposed to give him out of the riches of your home, just like, just like the Egyptians gave to Israel the riches of their home when God saved them from slavery. Let's look at Jesus. What kind of master is he? When it says that you're his slave, does that mean you're just one of the house slaves, like in the antebellum south? Is that what it means? I think this is an issue that has come up in the text that I think is something very important. We need to understand what slavery in the Bible actually is so that we're not manipulated by liberalism and and bad theology and, and are forced to vote for, think about, promote things that are ungodly, right? Because this whole woke America, woke church thing is a really big deal right now. And, and there are people that you normally would not think split over it or splitting over it, right? And this is one of the things. I read an article about the fact that we are actually all in sin. This church is in sin because we're so uh, uh, white. And they actually had on there a way to figure out how many ethnic people you should have in order to balance it out and make the church a, a church about equality, so now like forget sin I suppose. I just need to go find 3 Asians, 5 black people and some South Americans I suppose. And that that's really what my evangelistic plan should be about is ethnicity. And 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 go on the Gospel Coalition and look this up, the Gospel Coalition. That's not just some right-wing fringy thing. This is what they actually think the gospel is about. Right? Because we're we've been tied in knots about America and its sins that ought to be repented of, but even there you have to be very careful. Now, my family's from Tennessee. Is it my job now, which is another article I read, to apparently go find out if they ever owned slaves and then hunt those slaves' descendants down so that I can pay them back? Right? And no no wonder the church is so ineffective, because we've bought wholesale this whole idea. But what is this man showing us? Just like last week. This is a gospel for the humble and the humble only. The Syrophoenician woman would rather be considered a dog in God's house than to be the master of her own. This man would rather be a slave in God's house than the master of his own. Why? Why? What kind of master is Jesus? Is he a master that cares about you? Is he a master that cares about how well-fed you are? Is he a master that cares about how how well-clothed you are? Is he a master that cares about your spiritual state, right? A slave in Jesus' house is a co-heir to the God who owns the heavens and the earth. Think about that. John MacArthur wrote a book, and it's actually called Slave, (laughs) and it's excellent on this topic. He goes through the New Testament and he talks about slavery in a way that's very helpful and edifying, and in a way that will prevent you from getting manipulated, Jesus is not a conjurer. He's not a conjurer. He has come into this world because we submitted ourselves to slavery under Satan. You go back to the very beginning, he said, here, here is a garden, here is a world, go in my image now, you're going to go out and you're going to rule it and be a master like I'm a master because what, everything I've made is good, I am good, I am glorious, and I've, I've made all of this to share with you. And we were like, no, no, no. We would rather have a wilderness. We would rather be the slaves of Satan. And so what does Jesus have to do? He has to come into a wilderness, right, and be the strong man that throws down the person who has us in bondage to free us. You got to serve somebody. Listen to Bob Dylan. Okay, Bob Dylan at least got this part right. You got to serve somebody. There's no such thing as living... This is even what I love about this whole slavery issue. Patriarchy. Here's a, here, here This is the one I like the most. So, women, in order to be liberated, what you need to do is not have a man who's always telling you what to do, right, At in your home. You don't need to get married. What you need to do is you need to go work at this bank where there's a man who's always telling you what to do. <laughs> and what kind of master is he? Right? God forbid you had a man who loved you who's leading you well. Slavery, we can't have slavery. That's insane. Okay. Um, so, let, well, there's different kinds of slavery. Paul's very clear, right? All slavery must not be bad because Paul is very clear in the New Testament about how you are t- to treat slaves. But let's think about this, right? The last thing I want is slavery. The last thing I want is to, is to work for somebody else and do everything for him, like this Jesus guy. You do everything for him. You're out of your minds, Okay, well, um, okay, so your home loan is $500,000 through Bank of America. Your car loan is $40,000 through Bank of America. Your personal loan, that because you want to have the affluence your parents had, but you want to have it 20 years earlier, okay, Bank of America again. So you owe Bank of America $800,000, and you go to work, and you give all, all this money to them, and you can't move away. You can't get away from it. So what are you? right? You want to call me a slave? Well, I'm fine with that. Uh, there's, there's the trick. A lot of people don't like this language about slavery because we don't want, we don't want it to be anything but the master of ourselves. When you get down to the root of all of this, all of this messing around with scripture and what it means is this. We want to be our own masters. We don't want any other master. But you're going to serve somebody. So who are you going to serve? This man is death. This man cannot speak. Right? He, he, all, he knows all too well what slavery to Satan looks like, feels like, is like. And, and he wants a new master. And, he, and he's willing to serve Jesus. Right? Has he heard anything about who Jesus is? So how does he know that Jesus is a better master? Hmm. But here he is coming to Jesus, because any master would be better than the one he's got. A- and then and then and then he can hear, and he can speak. And it turns out that the new master is you can't even describe how much better. Now, how many of you, when you wanted to be baptized, maybe you were baptized as a kid, you didn't really have a choice. But do you guys remember a day in your life? when you came to realize that you really had won the lottery, that, that it really was better than anything you could possibly imagine? I remember I, like hearing about Jesus and I'd be like, okay, I want that master. And then I go and I follow him, and it turns out that I had no idea how amazing he was. And that's what it's like for all of us. This man has come to him. And what does he, right? He has no idea really what he's getting himself into, but he believes that Jesus can do it, right? Unless there's faith, Jesus isn't a conjurer of tricks. He really believes. And And so Jesus looks to the heavens. Now, this is verse 34 and 35. Jesus looks to the heavens and he sighs. Now, this word is he moans out. Because every time Jesus sees what kind of master we've submitted ourselves to, what kind of wilderness we've made of this world, it really, really affects him. He sees this man, and all he can do is look to the heavens, and it's the, the despair and the sadness that he feels over the sin and Satan is such that he can't even vocalize it. It's a groaning too deep for words that Paul talks about later. He just looks to the heavens and just sighs. Now, why does he look there? He looks to the mountains where his help comes from because he knows the Lord that lives there. He knows the God that's there. He knows the master that's there that he's willing to die for. He knows what kind of master that is and he doesn't want this man to be a slave to anyone else. He's he bring this man into our home. Let's pierce his ears. I I touch his tongue. I look to the heavens and I say, be opened. He doesn't say let his mouth be open. He doesn't say let his ears be open. He says of the whole man, let it be opened. Think about that because the spirit of God is now going to enter in. It's not just about his hearing. It's not just about his mouth. It's about the whole person. And this is the kind of master that Jesus is. He's concerned about the whole person. Now, Mark chapter seven, verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, right? Jesus is like, hey, come over here. Comes over here. He's doing some stuff to the guy. And then the guy comes walking back. He's like, Joe, I'm better. Joe, I'm better. And everyone standing there is like, um, astounded. Well, Jesus, all we wanted you to do was lay some hands on him and bless him. <laughs> it, it's quite clear and the astonishment that this is way more than anyone was expecting. They simply wanted the holy man to bless the sick man. Right? Like it says in James, it says, have the elders come and put oil on you and pray for you. They're expecting that kind of relationship. And here the guy can hear, the guy can speak. He speaks plainly, it says. If you go back into the the last verse, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now clearly, he had been able to speak before because no one has to teach him how to speak. Usually, if you have someone who's, de- who's this way from birth, you have to then teach them how to speak. But this man doesn't need anyone to teach him how to speak; he knew how. And he comes back, and everyone has lost their minds with astonishment because this is not this is so much more than what we were expecting him to do. That's the kind of master he is. This guy just wanted a new one; he would take anybody almost. And then who does he get? He gets a master who goes like, "Oh, you want to go ten feet? I'm going ten hundred miles." And he charged them, tell no one about this. Why? Because he doesn't want a conjurer of tricks. He wants relationship with people. He wants intimacy with people. He wants people to come to him, not because they think he can wave a magic wand and do magic stuff. He wants a relationship with them. Because so far, everyone's just going around, oh, Jesus says says this and commands this and do this. No, they're, all they're talking about is are the things that he's physically doing. And the more he commands them not to do it, the more they do it. Raise your hand if that's true of you, right? <laughs> Thank you, Titus. <laughs> so it says in Romans, I didn't really know it was sin until the word of, I read, the, like, there were sins, I didn't even know were sins, so I read them in the word of God, and then you know what? As soon as I found out, I really wanted to do them. <laughs> like, the wiser I get, little baby steps, suddenly I realize something I have been doing I can't do anymore. And you're like, man, now I I didn't really care before. Now I just want to really keep doing it. He says, he commands them, don't tell anyone. And they tell everybody. (laughs) They tell everybody. He doesn't just want to heal you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants stability. He wants you to obey. He wants you to come in and follow him and, and, and listen to him and obey him. He wants more than just to be a conjurer of tricks. Verse 37. And they were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now let's, does that sound like anything to anyone? I'm going to read it again. And they were astounded, shocked, beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Does that sound like anything that you've heard before in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. He does all things well. Is Jesus about just healing one guy? What, what has he come to do? He's come to open the ears, to pierce the ears of, of every man so that they can hear the word of God again. He's come to, so that, that he can, on our lips, give us the ability to praise the living God. We walked with God in the cool of the day, and we communed with him, and we lost that. We We wanted a new master. We wanted a wilderness instead of a garden, and Jesus isn't just here to heal individual men and women. He's here to recreate this world. He's here to make a highway in the wilderness. He's here to make the wilderness... A garden. And he does it one individual person at a time. If you know someone who, need, who cannot hear the word of God, if you're a person who has a difficult time hearing the word of God, come to Jesus like this man did. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? I heard the word of God and like 20 years ago, and I came and they flicked some water on me, and I've been sitting here ever since. What are you talking about? Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> Are you living in a wilderness? Is this world a wilderness? Is this city a wilderness? Is this country a wilderness? Or there are jackals devouring small children? It doesn't tell us whether this man was a Gentile or a Jew. That's important to know. Because every human being is hard of hearing. Every human being would rather curse God with their tongue than praise him. God is unstopping your ears. God is giving you the ability to praise him. That is what he is doing. It's not a once-for-all deal. Okay, He brings you into his family so that you can sit at his table with him and hear him. Now, if you're sitting at his table and you can't hear him because you don't open the word of God or you refuse to hear him, you need this miracle just as much as this guy did. You need your ears unstopped. You need to have your tongue loosened. Because think about your own life. What are you using that tongue to do? What are the words that are coming out of you? Well, no, no, it's okay. Because nothing unclean goes into me. Uh, that's not what he said. Right? He said it's what comes out of you that makes you clean or unclean. And what's coming out of you? Do you need to be cleaned? Do you need Jesus to spit and touch your tongue? Do you need him again? Again, he'll do it. Pierce your ears. Are you his slave? Are you just a puppy in his household? Right? That, whew, that grates. I want to be so much more than that. Well, you need, you need this miracle more now than ever. Now, how many people do you know who have blocked ears and their tongues are not used to praise God? Are you bringing them to Jesus It's what these guys did, and what happened for them. Well, you know, I mean, I tried to go down there and talk to them about going to church. Oh, okay, nice. How'd that go? That didn't go well. Why? Because you have no strength and power in yourself, right? This is, <laughs> I was just talking to someone recently who, through work, right, they found out about some terrible circumstances in a person's life, and it's very frustrating to do that. And the thing that we finally agreed on was, well, isn't it glorious now that now you know how to pray for them? Who knows if there was anyone else in their whole life praying for them? But you know now who needs Jesus, and you can take them to Jesus, right? We, we, we think it's us. If I just go door to door, if I do this or I do that, I'm going to help people see the light. And okay, you should live in a, a way consistent. With the gospel, because you are following a person and you're acting like a person, but you cannot forget who is the secret ingredient. <laughs> so many of us, in our errors in life, try to acquire for ourselves the, the right the, one of the persons of the Trinity. Some of us like the Father a lot, and we we reflect that in our lives. We like to have authority, right? We like to be a law unto ourselves. Some of us just like, uh, we like Jesus, we like his suffering, we like his servanthood, and so we're just doormats. Other people think that they're the thing that's going to change people's lives. And in so much of our bad ethics, so much of our lives that are full of heresy and and false lies that we believe, we we tend to think we're one of the three members of the Godhead. Right? People don't need more of you in their life. (laughs) They just... They don't. They need more Jesus in their life. You're bait. That's it. Right? This is, I was just reading this book and this pastor was like, listen, I have a hard time getting other pastors to see that you are simply, right? If you take this, this little thing and you wrap feathers on it and you put string on it, it looks a lot like the thing that fish, fishes like to eat. And you throw it in there and they think they're eating a fly, but you're catching them and they're, they're, you're just bait. You're just a bunch of nothing stuff wrapped up to look like Jesus. <laughs> you're the bait to bring them to Jesus. You find out your neighbor's having a baby, make them a meal. I'm not right. There's all kinds of other teaching that I've done that I'm not trying to undo at this moment. But you're not God. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. The most effective thing that we can do are, are take people to the source of life the source of healing, the person who unstops ears, the person who gives them the ability to praise the living God. This is grace, how sweet the sound. This man now, who had never heard a word, the first things he hears are the word of God. A tongue that he could not make any kind of clear utterance with, he now uses to praise the living God. This is what we all need. This is what we've all been given. This is what's been given to the world. And this is now the mission of the church. Just as it's happened to you, you need to now go and bring the people in your life before the God who will open their ears and open their tongues. Let this be not only the thing that fills our hearts with confidence and strength and life. Let this be the the thing that we go into the world to do. Let it be what we are, slaves in the house of God whose ears are open to his word, whose tongue is loosed so that we can praise him. And let this be our mission. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark and all that you are doing in our lives through it. We pray, Lord God, that we would consider our own lives, that we can see how you have healed us, how you have opened our ears, how you have loosed our tongues. For many of us, Lord, it's been a, a, a long time, We've stuffed cotton. We've stuffed many things into our ears to stop the word of God. I pray, Lord God, that this morning that you would heal us, that you would open our ears again. Lord, It's we have sinned greatly with our tongues. And we pray, Lord God, that this morning, as we commune with you here, that we would confess those sins, that you would heal us, that we would use our tongues to praise you, to speak your word. For you sent your son, the word of God, to us. May we hear him and may we speak him. May we receive him and may we proclaim him. Amen.